Um, yes, they're on. Oh, there we go. <laughs> There's that question answered. An early victory. Well, everyone went quiet with that sense of expectation <laughs> pressure. Um, thank you so much for coming to our um, session where it's just going to be us banging on. <laughs> In this barn. We were just wondering, out of curiosity, um, just put your hand up. How many people here listen to our podcast, Chat 10 Looks 3? Okay, all right. It's an unfair thing to do because people were like, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, I listen to it, or I'm planning to. Does that count? <laughs> um, so basically, we're talking about our reading lives, and you'll note that I have a lovely pre prepared list of notes. And you'll note that I don't. <laughs> and that is because mine is at my house on the kitchen table, covered with kid scribble and not here. So I have been texted a, uh, an image of that page. Uh, so um, the other thing is that I also left my glasses at home. So it's, unless I get a particularly talented seeing eye dog up here to get that sorted, I'm going to be winging it today. But you know, <laughs> it's pretty right that that should happen because you are normally the prepared person and I'm normally the idiot who comes in. And I like anything. taking control, so it's actually the perfect <laughs> outcome as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> See, she's already gone for some actual hard data on what proportion of the audience, you know, listens to the podcast. She's very forensic like that, don't you find? <laughs> I find she's very forensic Oh, that like reminds that. me. We'll leave about 15 minutes for questions at the end. Um, and just please, you know, questions, not statements. You know how these things, people sometimes make statements. If you attempt to make a statement, I will shut you down possibly aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, um, Crab, what are you reading at the moment? Stop what? texting in the middle I'm of not our texting. session. I'm just, I'm just pathetically like gazing at what the spidery remnants of my notes. But that's right. Uh, I do know what I'm reading at the moment. I'm reading um, James Bradley's latest book called Clade. Oh. I'm not at the bit where I've found out what Clade is yet, but um, it's kind of oh god, it's 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 very emotionally unsettling because it's all a bit sort of post-apocalyptic and you know a bit like that sort of Cormac McCarthy The Road type thing where you just think. Oh, dear God, it's all so terribly awful, isn't it? So um, it's a sort of book that you should sort of stop reading for a bit after you have children, I think. But um, it, it is excellent, I must say, so far. I'm surprised you're reading that. I wouldn't have picked you for that. It's sort of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, um, well, I went to uni with James. Not oh. that that makes me more likely to read his work, but um, I sort of picked it up and thought, oh, I'll give this a shot. And I was engaged with it, you know, very, very quickly. So, um, so I've been scooting through it. Um, I have just finished um, Just Us by Amy Bloom, which is just devastatingly great. Um, and you know how, I don't know, always uh, when you read F. Scott Fitzgerald, you always think, God, why isn't there a living person who writes like this? Well, I had that feeling a little bit when I was reading this book because it has that same kind of spare but incredibly elegant style and this really light humour that is just... Um, it just pivots really easily into kind of profundity. Anyway, it's a great, what, great book. What's it actually about? Oh, yeah, good point. Um, <laughs> so Just Us is about um, two half-sisters who... And it's set in the 40s in America, which is kind of an original thing to do right now, right? Um, and it's kind of... It's a bit like the other bit of World War II that you probably haven't thought about. So um, of these two sisters, um, one is a kind of wannabe Hollywood starlet. They go to Hollywood together and then um, the uh, starlet sister gets kind of hunted out of Hollywood for being a lesbian. Ooh. And then they kind of travel around building this family together. And one of the family members is a German-born guy who, because it's World War II, winds up being denounced and taken into um, detention and then being forcibly deported to Germany, where he's got no idea what he's doing, um, and it's highly traumatic. But it's kind of like the flip side of what you think about when you think about America in the 40s, um, and it's just impossibly elegantly written. It's, um, it's a great book, yeah. I love how you're already interviewing me, <laughs> right, okay? Yeah. Um, what are you reading right now, Lee? <laughs> Tell uh, the truth. I just, I just finished on Thursday night, the Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. Did you deliberately read something like really I can't. impressive? Because you're like, actually, there's something that I was... <laughs> you did! I can't even tell you the happy coincidence when I realised, oh, I'm going to be at the festival on Sunday and be able to stay. I just knocked over some Tolstoy. <laughs> because given what, are you my... interviewing Bob Carr soon or something? <laughs> 
with my reading habits, it could have just as easily gone, oh, I just knocked over Twilight by Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> you have um, an incredible breadth for like trash and treasure, yeah, I can say. Um, like, I do. I am a really eclectic um, reader, mostly because I've always read, you know, from as long as I can remember and I find it hard to if I'm sitting around somewhere like in a doctor's surgery or something I basically have to read so if I'm in a if I don't have my own reading material and I'm in a doctor's surgery and the choice is Sailing World or American Cheerleader I'll go um American Cheerleader and then just <laughs> pick it up so I finished that and I'm also simultaneously reading and I'm still reading a book called Moon Dust in Search of the Men Who Fell to Earth by Andrew Smith and both of these books say a little bit about um, what sort of a reader I am, which is I would describe myself as a bit of a rabbit hole reader, that I read one thing or I have an experience and then it pulls me into something and that pulls me into something else and so I sort of go down the rabbit hole. So the, def the Tolstoy book I was reading because I had been reading Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, and he referred to this Tolstoy novella, which was basically a guy on his deathbed um, feeling unloved and uncared for and sort of thinking back over his life and how he's pursued some wrong things. Um, and I'm f I have also felt a bit like I haven't read enough Russian literature, so I thought, All right, I'm going to grab that, so I jumped into that. And Moondust... It's basically about what happened to only 12 people in history have ever walked on the moon. And in that sort of period in the late 60s through to the sort of early 70s, at the time, everyone thought this was just the beginning, but it was actually the end because they started cutting the funding to the space program. Anyway, I had to interview Buzz Aldrin for I 7.30. Know. How was that? Uh, it was difficult because Buzz Aldrin spent two and a half hours on the moon and nobody has stopped asking him about it for the next 46 <laughs> years. And as one might imagine, being asked every day of your life in pretty much every social engagement, so what was it like being the second man to walk <laughs> on the moon is a little tiresome. Entirely um, lacking in atmosphere. But he had, when I read the... <laughs> When I read the prep for that interview, it was so interesting, and a particular article referred to this book, Moon Dust, about what happened to the astronauts when they came back, and because they all had pretty problematic experiences, and so, yeah, I got sucked into that. So how, when Crab and I were brainstorming this session, we just came up with a list of what we thought were interesting questions um, to talk about. So we Which just I now no longer have any <laughs> idea what they are, so, you know. Um, what <laughs> is currently on your bedside table, and what book has been there the longest? <laughs> So I'm a non-clearer of bedside tables. So I've got like a tottering. I sent you a picture. Of I wish that yeah. we had the picture. It was. It blew my mind. There's got to be about Maybe 45 books. Maybe I'll tweet books. it later or something. You it's, yeah. Um, yeah, there's probably about 35 to 45 books piled up. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And, um, and look, some of them just haven't moved in ages. You know, like so. I, you know, I kind of. I tend the top layers, but the bottom layers are really, you know, and I see books that I read for kind of stories or things that I did back when I was a cadet, pretty much, you know, like it's very... You should bring a geologist in there, they'll be able I to go should, through yeah. it. I should, yeah. This is like yeah. Igneous Rock, it's been there for... <laughs> but um, look, I have actually read most of them, how stupid is that, you know, so the... the um, I've got the goldfinch has been there for ages and it's half red, which is a really unusual thing for me. I don't, I'm a kind of Protestant book ethic person. I feel like if someone's taken the trouble to write it and I've started reading it, that I'm bloody well going to finish it, you know. Um, but I stopped halfway through the goldfinch because um, uh, I um, was appointed to be a judge on the Stella Prize, and part of that was, here are 160 books, um, get across those by uh, three months from now, would you? Which was a kind of just terrifying moment, just to think that, you know, I would have to get through all of those books in that time, but I actually found it completely changed the way, because I read less fiction now than I used to, because I read so much non-fiction for work, that in my brain non-fiction has become allied with working and doing the right thing and fiction has become allied with bunking off and, and being a slacker. And because I've got, you know, slightly too many small children as well, you know, when you... I mean, seriously, I'm so pathetic that I sit down with a novel and I feel like I'm having an affair or something. <laughs> and so the great thing about working on the Stella Prize was that all of a sudden this giant stack of books became work. This is a job. So I wouldn't feel guilty about reading all these books. It was so great. And it's kind of led me back to fiction in a way that um, 
you know, looking back, um, you know, reversed a sort of gradual and unfortunate trend for me over a number of years. Also, now I read a lot more fiction because I've got to come up with something impressive that I, I, I can say that I've read, you know, each week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true, for the podcast. Um, I thought my bedside table was disgraceful until I saw that photo of yours and then I felt really relieved. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go through it. I'm going to snip that sucker because, you know, I could... Par- I find it really hard to throw books out as well. And I know right. you're better at this than I am, but I've got now about 19 bookcases in my house. This is a piles and <laughs> it's, it's getting very close to hoarding now. <laughs> when I looked at my... There's only eight books on my bedside table, but when I looked at them, I realised four of them had been loaned to me by you, which is probably an attempt for you Have to you clean read up them? your bedside table. <laughs> Have you read them? No, they're all just yeah, sitting right. there. So That's th- awkward, isn't it? It's it is. It's awkward when someone you really like lends you a book and says... Oh, you're going to love this. Well, and then it's kind of, have you read that? Have you read the book yet? Know, have I you got to that book yet? So there's one, one novel from you, one non-fiction from you, two books from you that you gave to me to say, hey, we should write books like this. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah. sitting there making me feel shame. <laughs> um, and then of the ones, oh, you didn't say what's been there the longest, do you know? Oh, well, um, I think, well, I, the Goldfinch I mentioned because it's the one that's been there the longest without me finishing it. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and I kind of... Um, you know, I was so obsessed with The Secret History when it came out, mm. Donna Tartt's first book, which was this sort of, you know, me and my housemate, Rachel Healy, who's actually here today, um, she's just been appointed the festival director for Adelaide, which is so awesome. Anyway, well done, right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, but she and I shared a house many years ago, um, and she gave me The Secret History for my birthday, and... Um, and then started reading it herself, I think, so in, in the manner that is typical of Rachel. Um, and then, so then we procured two copies. And there was this one day we were both so into this book that we both took the day off and sat in facing armchairs, chasing each other through this book. And then we'd stop for breaks and quiz each other on comprehension details, you know, like, where did Bunny go to high school and so on. I was so devastated... Um, uh, like late last year when the first Tuesday book club did this sort of, you know, best books to read over summer. And it was all of these people who know a lot about books on a panel talking about, you know, this popularly uh, elected list of 20 books. And The Secret History was at about number four because obviously lots of people enjoyed that as a summer novel all the years ago when it was written. And like every single person on the panel just said what a rubbish book it was. Oh, and I was just, you know, I, I was it. almost in tears. Like, oh, God, what's wrong with me? <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. oh, I loved that book. Yeah. Um, I looked at the dates and the ones on mine because I knew there were two that had been there a long time. And it feels like they've been there about six months, but I thought probably longer. Um, I've had David Moranis' biography of Barack Obama, which has been sitting there since 2012. Right. Um, and the collected writings of Jean Weingarten, who's a reporter at the Washington Post, whose work I really like, has been sitting there since 2010. <laughs> so, I mean, at what point do you, re- do you accept I'm probably not going to read that? <laughs> never. Oh, that never. reminds me. Okay, so another question we've got. What's the book that you've always meant to read but you never have and now that you're 42, fear, fear that you probably never will? Ulysses. Yeah. Ulysses. Yeah. I'm never going to read Ulysses. I mean, yeah. it's terrible. Um, and I'm just being realistic about it because yep. uh, I reckon... Look, I think I had a stab at reading Ulysses in my pretentious way when I was about like 17 or something. I was just like, what? You know? <laughs> and um, so I think that what you need is a quiet room, um, maybe a large scotch, and um, a lot of time to mm. absorb yourself in a, like this giant slab of a book like that. And because the way I read now is sort of by subterfuge, you know, I do things like I take the train because then I can read, you know, um, without um, uh, distraction. Um, You know, you carve out every little bit of the day where you can read. I'm always annoyed that nobody has perfected a waterproof book thing for the shower, you know. (laughs) Is there a waterproof Kindle thing? Probably. There should be. All right, let's put that on our list of things to invent. Um, So uh, my my grandmother, who is now 98, uh, her name's Sheila, uh, she read Ulysses. uh, And it was actually when I was about 17. She's a huge reader. Um, And I said, God, full on, Granny. What do you think of that? She said, 
It was a dirty book. <laughs> I said, did you finish it? She said, of course. That's where I get my Protestant book ethic from. But, you know, she kind of, like, I picked through her bookshelves a lot when I was a kid because like, she's a great reader and um, I'm sure that's where I get it from. I don't reckon I'm going to read any Dickens. Any? No. Oh. Oh. But see. The audience is turning. <laughs> I know. An ugly mood erupts. Well, do you know what? Like, I reckon in my childhood, I cheat read a lot of the classics. I did. This is a really good trick, right? (laughs) So, I read, um, I was completely obsessed with this book called Lamb's Tales, which is like um, all the Shakespeare stories written for children with pictures. And they were really great pictures. And so, (laughs) over my entire pretentious theatre-going subsequent life... (laughs) It's been the most valuable book because even where I haven't read the play, I'm yes. like, oh, yeah, much ado about nothing. I'm all over it. Or I'll be like, oh, yeah, Benedict, what a dick, you know. And I'll know because I'll remember from the pictures, you know. And it's and seriously, and I've, you know, I've read a bunch of the plays and I've seen them, but I always know what's going on. The other one, the other cheat sheet that I unwittingly toppled into when I was a kid and I was totally obsessed with this book called Tales of Troy and it was kind of like a sort of Homeric adventure um, (laughs) adapted for kids and it kind of was really gory and it was all about sort of Agamemnon coughing up black blood (laughs) and all this kind of like stuff. Is there one in this series about Ulysses that we could just lay our hands on? And then we yeah, might... well, it's kind of full Odysseus kind of right. adventures. So everyone's in there, like right. Perseus, okay. you know, they're all in there. And, you know, it's perfectly digestible, you know. Perfect. So it's kind of like um, cheat notes, or like the York notes for something, only because it's sort of a bit vintage, totally <laughs> respectable. Well, that's how I look at it anyway. While I'm putting the audience offside, let's yeah. go to another question in that vein. Is there a classic that you're ashamed to admit you can't bear? Oh, anything by Philip Roth. I like Philip Roth. I just can't. Oh, I just think, oh, all right, is this poor woman your mother or an nymphomaniac? Like, I mean, <laughs> I get really annoyed by female characters, you know. And, I mean, there's some books that I know I should hate on that grounds, but still just unshakably love, like lots of books by Martin Amos, who I love even though I just think, oh, God, you're such a prick. So it's a bit like that with Philip Roth. In fact, one of the books I put down for that question was Rabbit Run by John Updike, um, which is almost the same grounds as you said for Philip Roth. they're all friends, aren't they? They are all buddies, yeah. But it's just, it's so blokey and it was so, it was basketball and I just found it sort of... (laughs) impenetrable. I love that if there's any mention of sport, you're just, just like, like no, gone. No, not interested. Uh, <laughs> Don't come at me with your, with your balls in, in any sense. <laughs> um... But, but I what, did, how did you like Philip Roth then? Like, what? I don't know. The only thing I could come up with was I read Rabbit Run when I was 18. And you know how sometimes you read books and you read them at the wrong time in your life? You're either too yep. young or you haven't had the right life experience. And so perhaps I would read Rabbit Run now and think it was just a work of genius. But I must say, whenever John Updike shows up in The New Yorker with a short story, it doesn't hook me. It just doesn't hook me. The other classic that I... Um, Everyone keeps... There's a lot of people who say this is one of their favourite books. Midnight's Children by Selman Rushdie. Oh, I can't cop that. Impenetrable. No. I can't get what into it. What do you mean? I can't get into it. Are you kidding? I, no, I've tried about three times. It just <sighs> bores me. I forgot to put that on my list of things I wish I'd written, but that's like <laughs> one of them. <laughs> but then again, subsequent Rushdie, I can't do... Really? No. Uh, Not really. That, um, there's a bunch of Rushdie's subsequents on my, you know, to-do list, which I will never throw out because maybe one day I'll get around to, you know, getting through, but... Yeah, he likes children. I don't know. I read it when I was um, being a backpacker in Poland. So I had that book, you know. So that does rather focus the mind when you can't, you know, there's nothing else. But (laughs) I do remember, in fact, whenever I kind of look back at that book, uh, all I remember is the sort of geography of Poland, which is, I'm sure, not what the author had intended. That's one of the things um, that I do a lot of my reading now on the Kindle or on my iPad on the Kindle app. um, And... Uh, to the degree that I sometimes feel a little irritated now when I have to read a hard copy, just because I'm the sort of person, I remember when I used to do backpacking holidays, the biggest issue was yeah. the weight of my bag, because yeah. I'd be so scared I'd run out of reading material. Um, but it does, 
even though the books are different, it does homogenise the experience to a degree. Everything feels, because it's all the same experience, the physical experience of reading it is all the same. So you don't quite have that book memory of the smell of a book or the feel of a book. Or Or the place where something is on the page. Yeah. When I, like, the way I remember, you know, if I want to go back through a book and find a line that I loved, I can always remember where on the page it was. And the Kindle is just kind of, it's, I mean, I'm so bad at um, digital equipment and, you know, like I don't even, I use shorthand instead of a dictaphone just because I can't scroll back through things. I've got no spatial awareness of where something is, right. you know, in something that's an electronic document. Well, I, there's a session I'm chairing this afternoon and I read all three books on the Kindle and when I had to say to the authors, this is the bit I'd like you to read, I had to say, Look, I'm sorry about this, but for your section, it's 21% in. <laughs> that's how... There's no romance in yeah, that, is there? Yeah, I know. There? It was so you know, Do you know so one cool. respect in which the Kindle is good for you, though, personally, yeah. is that, see, if I were you and, you know, um, on the train or something and you're sitting there, you know, cackling away at some Twilight novel, yeah. I'd be terrified that somebody's like, God, I saw that Lee Sales on the train. She's, like, <laughs> she's reading vampire fiction. I'm not sure that that really augurs well for the polity. But so with the Kindle... You could just be like, I'm reading Tolstoy here. <laughs> so that um, anonymity of reading yeah, experience like, can be an upside, but also I also find it really sad because I love watching what people are reading yeah, on the train. Same. Especially and then if now, they are having a reaction to it. Yes, right. Yeah. And, and then you think, you look at that person and you think, you wonder who they are and you look at the way they are and you see what they're reading and you think, oh, that's the sort of person that reads that book. Yeah. It's very weird when you see someone reading your book on the train, and especially if they're not the sort of person that you would really picture reading <laughs> That has never happened because I've never seen anyone on the train reading my book. Let me hasten to add. Um, I once but, saw someone in a bookshop pick up my book and look at it and put it down. <laughs> oh. Was that during your first book phase where you just loitered in bookshops the whole time? And put them so, like to the front, like yeah. instead of leaving them sideways, like turn them so they faced out, <laughs> so it'd be prominent for people to see. But that kind of companionship of reading, you know, is a bit dead in the age of people, you know, kind of like you just get on the train and people are just like, yeah, just checking their emails and I was talking playing, to, um, you know, Crossy Road or something. I was I forget who it was. But I was talking to an author I met in the green room and saying one of the great things about hanging out with people who read, like I could probably be left alone for half an hour with anyone in this room and we would be able to have an interesting conversation because we would say, what are you reading at the moment? And it's a point of commonality that you can, you know, you have that sort of thing with other readers. It's great. Okay, um, what's the book other than Midnight's Children that you wish you'd written? Okay, well, I had extensive notes on this because I I made some careful decisions about what I would say here. Of course, that's all gone. Um, Every time I read um, a Nancy Mitford um, novel, I just think, um, I wish I'd written this. And I think it's just because I wanted to be Nancy Mitford. You know, I think it's a very complicated... I always get very defensive when people say, God, Mitford, it's such lightweight bullshit and, you know, it's sort of posh porn and all that sort of stuff. I don't know. I mean, I think that the reason that lots of um, people get very drawn into the Mitfords is, is... not necessarily because of the posh porn, but just because of this sort of, well, for me, this intoxicating idea of these, all these sisters who kind of write fabulous letters to each other and um, fight and do extraordinary things that are massively ill-advised, but just do it anyway, you know? And I think um, that there is something very intoxicating about that. In terms of a sort of a, um, you know, a... Uh, an achievement, a literary achievement, which I would like to have authored, you know. I would love to have crafted something of the complexity and courage and sheer um, addictiveness of Lolita, you know. And and that bastard's writing in a second (laughs) language as well, which really annoys me because that book is, and and I read that really, like, when I was way too young to read it because I thought there'd be dirty bits. Um, And... um, and I didn't reread it until much later and realise this sort of incredible language and just think, how can you do stuff like that with words, you know? How can you learn a second language and then 
abandon all of its conventions and create something so ringing, you know? That, That's, that, that book is just absolutely... If you take anything out of this session, read Lolita. It's, <laughs> I, like, I, we, one of our things is our top three fiction, top three non-fiction. It's on my top three fiction. Yeah. I think it's just a phenomenal piece of work. Um, the book that I wish I'd written is... I mean, there's so many, but... Um, the Spare Room by Helen Garner. Yeah, well. uh, we are both massive Helen Garner fans and I love really sparse writing and sort of I think she packs more punches per, you know, square centimetre of writing than just about anybody. And I loved that the premise of that book was so simple. It's just a woman and a friend with cancer comes to stay and the friend's trying all sorts of alternative therapies and the host is so annoyed by it because she just thinks this is ridiculous and it's just so skillfully done. I thought it was the perfect novel. And it's, it's one of those books that you... Like anything that's really brilliantly executed, it looks like it must have been easy. You know how people who are really skillful make yeah. stuff look like it's easy? It's so terrible. the spare room, you finish it and you think, oh... I could have done that. Like, it's such a simple <laughs> premise. And, but, but you know you couldn't, couldn't have done it. But I, um, I loved that it was a, you know, it was a sort of small... You read books that have, like, an epic large scale that are incredibly detailed and researched, and you think, oh, I could never do that. Like, I could never write Harry Potter. Like, it's so intricate. Um, and the spare room, it seems like... It's very it's spare. Reach. It's very spare. But um, oh, it was, but it's deceptive because the degree of difficulty of executing something like that is huge. Don't you think, though, that the, the thing that is great about Helen Garner is that she is, she is such a hard worker, not not just in um, a kind of technical sense, but in an emotional sense. So when you read anything, like seriously anything that she's written, you know that there's, you know, you know that she's, she's been lying awake worrying about it for, you know, months, if not years. You know, she puts this sort of emotional work into it. She never takes the easy way out. I mean, one of the books, I mean, do you know it's 20 years this year since the, since, um, uh, the First Stone was published. Mm. And that's one of the books on which I've really kind of changed my mind, I think, over the years. Because when I read it first, I was a kind of university feminist and I kind of hated it and I thought, you know, she doesn't get it. And then I re I've reread it many times over the intervening years. And I have come to really respect that book for the courage of its project and the bravery of some of the questions that she asked. And also because I think I have a kind of maturing idea about the complexities of power. But, you know, um, the, the thing that I continue to appreciate about her is that she, um, and the latest book, This House of Grief, is a really great example of this. She plows into a really hard, risky, um, often unpleasant story and she stays there and she sticks with it and she does a lot of the suffering for you, which is why when you pick up that book you can read it um, without kind of perishing, which might otherwise occur if you just ventured into those stories unchaperoned. Mm. God, she's brilliant. It makes me laugh all the time as well. Like that, oh. the latest thing that she's written in the monthly, which is an account of ageing, is just sort of, it's outrageous, it's hilarious, it doesn't waste a word, it's full of kind of anger and humour. It's just, yeah, it's she's just, just awesome. I know, she's totally at the top of her game. That when, uh, we both love that piece so much and I, sent Crab a link to a piece that had been in the New Yorker last year by Roger Angle about being 93. Wasn't it amazing? It was... Because nobody, nobody writes about being 93 because there's so few people with the faculty still able to do it. And it's this incredibly... <laughs> well, it's true. It's, in, it's incredibly... Um, so a world-class writer writing in a world-class way about how it feels to be 93, it was a really phenomenal piece of work. Um, who is the book character you most wanted to be as a child? Oh, well, you know, um, it was pretty... I grew up on a farm and I read a lot, so I did a lot of wafting around pretending I was various people. Um, I went through... Um, I mean, look, I remember... I read this picture book called Dick and Dora. Did anyone ever remember that? I demanded to be called Dora for um, a short period of time. Um, and then when I was reading um, Enid Blyton, I remember I asked my parents for permission to call them mother and father instead of mum and dad. They were like... Sure, Dora, whatever. Um, 
But I think you don't really kind of reach your wanting to be a character until you're sort of in your teens. And, you know, as a person who's always, you know, dreamed of being more windswept and interesting than I really am, um, you know, I went through a bit of a wanting to be Kathy, you know, stage, oh, yeah. Heights. but I'm mean, like, Jesus, now you just need get some friends, Kathy. <laughs> They'll give you the steer on this guy, you know. <laughs> It's not that interesting, you know. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and, of course, you know, I wanted uh, to be Sibylla in my brilliant career, obviously, right. because she was an interesting um, farm-based person with, with <laughs> ambition <laughs> and some talent. <laughs> it's hilarious how much more your highbrow, how you want to be so much more highbrow than me. And this is where the sort of Tolstoy thing just comes crashing down. <laughs> um, so when I was a kid, I just so wanted to be Nancy Drew. Oh. Um, and my friend, because every, all the books I read, it felt like everyone had so much more of an interesting life than I yeah. did. So, you know, all the chalet school people having their midnight feasts and the, oh, what about the enchanted wood? I was just, we yeah. had a gum tree in the backyard. I just used to look at it like with yeah. yearning, just thinking, oh, please just turn into a faraway tree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my friend Mandy and I used to ride our bikes all around the neighbourhood nonstop pretending to be Nancy Drew and her sidekick George or Bess or whoever, whoever Mandy felt like being. And... Um, um, there was a family. She that was always the sidekick, I'm guessing. <laughs> Sorry, Mandy. Are you getting the feel for what's going on here? I'm, just, I'm the new Mandy, so. You know. <laughs> the, um, there was a family. That Look at how you crossed your arms, love. <laughs> There was a family that lived diagonally over the road called the Rubies, and we used to like pretending that one as of them... As in Jack Ruby. That's nice. As in Dean Scott and I forget the other one's name, Paul Ruby. And we used to um, pretend that one of them had gone missing and we'd refer to ourselves riding around in the neighbourhood as if we were on the case of the missing Ruby. <laughs> Um, but nothing ever happened in our neighbourhood. There was never any mysteries to solve, sadly. I also wanted to be Anne of Green Gables, who sure. I just, you know, just the best. Um, I went to Prince Edward Island when I was the Washington correspondent for the ABC, purely because I was such an Anne of Green Gables fan. Um, but as, an a as I got older, probably the type of thing I'm most drawn to, even though I could never be this type of person in real life because I'm too anxious, um, probably I'd want to be like... Kay Scarpetta out of the Patricia Cornwalls oh, right. or um, Jason Bourne, like, you know, one of those, like, spy-type people. Do you do a lot of crime fiction? Uh... No, but I do really appreciate a good crime thriller. In fact, the session I'm doing, the Savo, um, I read a book called I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes. Oh, God, I loved it. I, it's, I was waking up at 4am just going, no, I've got to read it. And that's the first <laughs> book in ages that I've, because I'm so tired, that's the first book in ages I've actually done that for. I could not bear to oh, that's stop reading great. it. That's yeah, I great. loved it. I loved love that it. feeling. Yeah. I'm, you know, I am a sort of, um, I really like true crime. But I'm not really into crime fiction. I like it to be real. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I like, I mean, In Cold Blood um, is one of my top three non-fiction. Yeah. Uh, that was just a phenomenal um, read. But true crime... The We're going to have the same top three, aren't we? Probably. Yeah, yeah. True crime, um, like all non-fiction, the non-fiction, if you're trying to write it, I reckon, is it's good in one way because the facts impose a certain structure because you don't have endless options about what you're going to do. You can only work with what you've actually got to work with. And so that, in some ways, the, the limited choice, I think, helps. Um, also, you never know how it's actually going to end. Like, I mean, if you're the writer and you're following something and it doesn't end the way that you expect it to, then yeah. you've got a ruined book on your hands, haven't you? Mm. I mean, like, you, you must... I always think that that must be why Truman Capote went mad because, you know, yeah. there's this sort of... And how do you finish with these murderers with whom you're now totally yeah. intimate? Well, he, in the film, in the version of that where they have... They keep appealing and he needs... The, end, the, the natural ending right. of the book needs to be the death of the guy. Yeah. And he, the guy keeps appealing and Capote's like... Oh. I know. It's terrible, <laughs> isn't it? In fact, one of the kind of reading spirals that I got into is about a true crime crime book. I think I, I read um, a book, The Journalist and the Murderer by yeah. um, Janet Malcolm, which is all about how morally indefensible every journalist alive is. So it's very cheering. So this sort of famous first line, which is something like, you know, any journalist who thinks that what they do is anything short of moral exploitation is either stupid or kidding themselves. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, so let's, uh, let's crack on to page two. Um, but she wrote that about um, a case where a true crime writer 
got involved uh, in a case, was invited to come and write a story um, about um, this guy who'd been, a guy called Jeffrey McDonald, who'd been accused of killing his family, you know, in this sort of frenzied attack um, in the um, army base where he was um, stationed. Um, he said that um, a bunch of hippies broke in and murdered his wife and their two tiny children. Um, but he was then charged. He invited this writer um, called Joe McGuinness to come and... Um, cover his defence. And halfway through the trial, McGuinness decides that he's actually guilty but doesn't tell the accused this. And in fact, the accused doesn't know that his sort of biographer actually thinks he did it until the book comes out. And I know. Anyway, the book is really... So I read Janet Malcolm's total sort of takedown of this writer, Joe McGuinness, um, and then I read the book itself. And then I became completely obsessed with the whole story. And when I went to America in 2011 on unrelated business, I stalked, chased down, and went and made friends with Joe McGuinness to hear the whole side of the story. He had also written one of the great political books that I've ever read, um, and I'm just reconstructing my top list now because <laughs> I don't have it, and I've forgotten what it is because it's such a hard decision, um, called The Selling of the President, where he followed Nixon around in 1968 and um, unforgettably chronicled the sort of TV advertising campaign that Nixon put together. It's a brilliant, brilliant book, still in print, and it was written in 68. Anyway, I'm totally off the chain now. And I um, so... Um, that, uh, that book, Fatal Vision, it's called by um, Joe McGuinness, um, about the murderer that he subsequently decided was, um, was guilty. The murderer then sued him for um, breach of contract, you know, and that's what Janet Malcolm's book, The Journalist and the Murderer, is all about. As a package deal, it's a great yep. read because it's kind of a gripping story, but then it kind of pans back to all these questions about Holly. the relationship of writers to their subjects. And I read it in the same order as you. It must yeah. have been a um, uni... Uh, well, Journalist and the Murderer was discussed in my university journalism yeah. course, so I did the same order. And that work, it sort of works quite well, doesn't mm. it, to read it in that order? So. Yeah, it does. Yeah. What about um, which book will leave you most heartbroken if your child doesn't like it? So I had a crack because when I was a kid, we were kind of all so into Wind in the Willows. And I gave that a crack with my daughter, but I went in too early and she was a bit like nonplussed. So I'm giving it a good long time before I give it another shot with my son. So my daughter's eight. I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old. So I'm learning to triage books a bit more rather than just kind <laughs> of, you know, shove it at them. I must say, though... I, I would have answered this question differently a few years back um, before, if I'd answered it before my children started learning to read because I, have to, I reckon one of the most exhilarating things about having children is watching them learn how to read and then seeing the point at which they enjoy reading. And like my daughter is just completely into it like she's she reads exactly like me kind of fast and then more 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 so I mean that I love so much that I sort of care less what she's reading right I just that sight of her kind of she walks to school you know like this which is what I used to do and I love that she does that so much that I care less now what she's reading um but one series of books that I read when I was probably um you know kind of maybe 10 or 11, was um, all those books by Gerald Durrell, um, oh, yeah. My Family and Other Animals. Yeah. And, um, and I kind of wanted to be him because he grew up on a Greek island and his whole, he, he just didn't go to school ever. And he spent his whole days, you know, in the baking sun being fed homemade popcorn by toothless old guys. And, you know, <laughs> and uh, that sounds wrong when I say that. But, you know, <laughs> it was like, and he had a pet... And he had a pet owl that he called like Mephistopheles or something. I was like, I want a pet owl called Mephistopheles. God damn it. Um, and he would like turn over rocks and collect scorpions. And actually, he was completely obsessed with animals, of course. And he went on to kind of establish his own zoo. And in some of the later books, they were all about him, you know, traveling around the world and gathering specimens for his zoo. I mean, it's thoroughly indefensible on some levels, but it was so exciting, you know, that he would kind of go into the jungle and find all these animals. And so... I love books where you read it and it's a fascinating story. He's very funny as well. But then you also learn things. And mm. so 
I to this day think I know more about weird examples of rare animals that are found in, you know, the Brazilian rainforest or whatever because I was so in love with those books. It's, so inc it's incredible how you um, – when I was in um, – Rome, I read, um, what's that pot boiler? The Da Vinci Code oh, by right. Dan Brown. Um, and so they'd be talking about various churches and artworks and whatnot. And so I'd pop over and see whatever he's talking about. And I felt like I did actually learn about some Renaissance art through reading the Da Vinci Code. Because <laughs> <laughs> once it's dressed up in a pacey thriller, it's incredible how much you retain out of it that you wouldn't if you were just reading a textbook. You know it's not all true, right? Oh, that book. No, what? <laughs> Um, I, I have two sons and so I must admit I'm already a little bit heartbroken because I think they probably won't like Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> um, and I'd probably be a little sad, quite a bit sad actually, if they didn't like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I think I'd feel pretty, pretty sad about oh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, now, why don't we take some questions from the floor? So if you'd like to ask us something, put your hand up and we'll, there's a microphone that's going to roam around. How about over here? Um, where's the mic? I'll just shout it out. Oh, actually, no, wait for the mic. It's, <laughs> it's just coming down the centre now. Just keep your hand up. And <clears throat> Thank you, for Lee, for allowing me not to read Dickens for the rest of my life. <laughs> I've been Let's knock some others that. off the list while we're at it. Um, apropos of which, I, as I've got older, have adopted a rule that if I'm not into a book by 75 to 100 pages, life is too short. How do you respond to that proposition? I um, basically, I'm a bit like Annabelle, I get this sort of feeling of wrongness if I don't finish things, but I also agree with you that life's too short. So I've set myself a thing now, when I'm starting a new book, I have to read the first 30 to 50 pages in one go, because I think if I don't do that then I just, every time I look at it again, I haven't got the, quite the thread of who's who and I feel like I'm not getting into it. And so I think I can only make a fair judgment if I've gone sort of 30 to 50 pages. And then if I get to 75 to 100 pages and I'm not into it, I let it go now. What do you do? Well, I tend to hang in there still. I know, I, and sometimes I go faster for the, bit, for the rest, you right. know, of it. And... <laughs> then I kind of feel a bit bad. I think I've got to let go of this, t to be honest, because it's just, it's sort of ridiculous. Yeah. And I think it's just because, do you know what I think is, having like written a couple of books, I feel like I'd be so angry if somebody didn't finish one. You know, it'll be like, it gets really better towards the end. You know, like there's a really awkward bit, but, but please stick around. So I kind of feel... I feel like I owe a debt of courtesy, <laughs> except for like if I'm really annoyed, if I just think, oh God, you're just full of crap, then I'm happy to kind of, if I've, if I've developed a personal animosity to the writer, right. you know, so like I, I, I think I probably would have decided against a few Philip Roth offerings halfway right. through, just like. One of the questions we had on our list was, what would you read if you only had three months left to live? Well, I would start off with some self-education material about how to break bad news to children, I think. <laughs> um, do you know what? I reckon, I've thought a lot about this question, and my in initial response, is that ringing sound just in my ears, or is that, you know, good, excellent. Um, so, I thought, because I'm a great book rereader, you know, and sometimes when I'm really tired... And you know when you haven't got much time and you think, I do not want to waste time by getting into something that might not be excellent. You know, my tolerance yeah. for sort of imperfection when I've got hardly any time to spend. And because I know that if I start something, I'll probably finish it and end up, you know, hating myself and the author. Um, so I, I often reread books. And so I first of all thought, I reckon if I had three months to live, I would lock myself in a room with, you know, every book that I've ever loved and reread them. But then I think, I reckon if I had three months to live, um, I would probably want to spend it writing, actually. Oh. Isn't that, you know, some of the most, I mean, we've had this conversation before about the writing that people do when they know that they're going to die. I mean, it kind of harks back a little bit to that New Yorker piece that you're talking about, which is just incredible. And it's a, to it's a sort of an undercovered area, you know, because what do people do when they know they've got three months to live? Well, lots of them don't sit down and write about what's happening to them. So mm. I don't know. I think that 
maybe that would be my impulse. I would comfort read, I think. Yeah. I think I would just reread. And I'd probably reread some children's books that I really liked as well, just for that sort of nostalgia and for the memories that it brings back and that sort of thing. Probably um, not riding around on your bike, though. Not you riding around on my know, bike, no. But, you know, it's, nostalgia is so powerful. Like, I watched recently the new trailer for the Star Wars film that's about to come out, and that it's actually got Mark Hamill, who played Luke Skywalker, did some of the voiceover, and Harrison Ford's in it. And... Um, Star Wars, I think if you're of our age, it's such a major part of your childhood, especially if you have brothers. And so my brother always played with Star Wars figures and it was just a big... I remember mum and dad taking us to the drive-in to see when Return of the Jedi came out. Anyway, the section in the trailer when... And I wouldn't have said I'm particularly that interested in going and seeing the new Star Wars. When Harrison Ford showed up with Chewbacca and he said, Chewie, we're home, I started weeping. (laughs) Bizarre. Anyway, sorry. Questions. (laughs) I have nothing. The lady at the front and the man (laughs) behind. Um, Just both of you have interviewed some very interesting characters, if we want to call them that. Is there anyone that you think, oh, I I want to interview that person or I wish I'd interviewed that person, but they've passed on? We were talking about this very thing on Friday and um, I must admit over the years I've reached the conclusion that if you particularly admire somebody, it's better to not meet them. (laughs) Um, Because it can only be... Well, it's not always a disappointment. Sometimes you meet people that you admire. And that is not true them. of Helen Garner, with whom we yeah, had lunch we had, on Friday, and that was, it was every ounce as fabulous yeah, as you would think it. it would be. So I but, feel very protective that we've just said, oh, you better better not to meet the Except if it's Helen Garner. Yeah, okay, Helen, that really yeah, works Helen out, Garner. right? Every now and again you meet someone and you think, oh, you were just... Like, I interviewed Matt Damon, and he was just absolutely lovely um, and just good fun and really nice. Whereas The Corrections is one of my favourite novels and I had to interview Jonathan Franzen a few years ago and he was so rude and I thought just mean um, that it just made me love The Corrections a little bit less and just disappointed me because I really did love The Corrections. So um, people that I really think are amazing, like say for example David Bowie or Paul McCartney, I just I don't want to interview them because, what, I mean, what can you ask David Bowie? I mean... Nothing. Yeah, I know. There's nothing you could ask that would no. be original. And anyway, he'd be so jaded and kind of like he'd raise one eyebrow <laughs> and look at you out of one of those unusually <laughs> coloured eyes and just go, yeah. Well. Did you see that episode of Extras where he sings that? He looks at Ricky Gervais and he starts singing, funny little fat man. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Extras is the greatest show ever. God. No, not. Is it Extras? What yeah, about, extras what about um, when Kate Winslet is talking about how, God, you only ever really get an Academy Award if you've got cancer or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Terrible. Oh, my God. It's so funny. Um, um, do you want to interview anyone? Well, look, so I interviewed at the Melbourne Writers Festival a couple of years ago Boris Johnson, who, oh, yeah. you know, so. I know. So, um, he's just a sort of politician that you kind of... Love Boris. Yeah. Well, I know, yeah. Anyway, and, and I have pretty much read everything he's, even, he's ever written, including the novel, which I wouldn't actually recommend. Um, but there's a really good example of somebody who has this incredibly weird brain, you know, hyperactive, retains a massive amount of information, has this intense talent for um, kind of humour and irreverence and is, I don't know how he manages everything, but anyway, so I sort of thought, the day that I got the phone call to say, like, do you want to do this was just, you know, was up there with the, you know, possibly in the top one moments of my life. <laughs> anyway, and so then you get this, oh God, is it going to be terrible? It was kind of incredible, you know, and, and um, I think he was a bit stalker freaked out by the depth of my recollection (laughs) of, you know, scandals in which he'd been involved and things that he had written here, there and everywhere. Um, There was this great article interview that was written um, with him in the Telegraph in London when he became the shadow culture minister where they fired 10 general knowledge questions at him about the arts and it's the most fabulously bumbling stuff <laughs> up. You know, he got, I think, two out of ten. And, the, and they actually just printed verbatim what he'd said on the phone when they asked him the questions. And there was this one with, like, the well, question was something like, what's number one on the pop charts right now? And him saying, dear Jesus Christ, this is rigged. I, how would I know? I, I mean, it's ridiculous. Hang on a minute. Um, my secretary thinks it might be uh, a song by somebody called Rapist. Is that right? So I was like, <laughs> Anyway, I just about memorised that whole Q&A, and this is from, like, 2000 and... 
four or something. And um, <laughs> I kind of read some of that back out to him and he was just like, well, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but he was horribly hungover when we met, when we had this, you know, exchange. He was like, oh, you know, hair everywhere. Oh, I drank stupid amounts of red wine last night, I'm afraid. It was hopeless, I can't even remember my name. <laughs> And so by the end of this exchange, I think that he worried that he hadn't been interesting enough, which was not true. And so somebody in the audience asked him about, is it important for people to learn classics? And he responded by, and this is, the, this is easily the best moment of any interview I've ever been involved in. He just started to recite, and he went on to recite the first 50 lines of the Iliad in the original Greek. I know, right? And it was just one of those things where you're kind of like, oh, very droll, Oscar. And then it's just sort of like, holy shit, he's going to keep going. And then he just went on and on and on. And then he started performing. He was the priest in the tree and he was like, and then at the end, he just went, thank you for coming. And everyone was just like, So that was pretty great. <laughs> what about the gentleman over here? Apart from Boris Johnson, you've both interviewed many politicians, and I suspect you speak to them informally occasionally too. Do you discuss books with politicians, and what, if anything, do they read? Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah. Um, this is another thing we've talked about, which yeah. is um, I am always really irritated when it often happens around Christmas. People ask politicians... <laughs> I know where you're going. Yeah, what's this is one of your niche oh, problems. Exactly, that's <laughs> yeah. right. um, what, you know, what's your favourite books or whatever? And at least 50% of people say To Kill a Mockingbird, and that is um, a wonderful book, of course, but it's so unimaginative. And to me, that screams, I have not read anything since high school. <laughs> and I think because a lot of pollies are so busy, they probably don't read very much. I, in fact, have some friends who are in that world who... They don't get reading fiction. They think, like, why are you reading fiction? Like, just wasting your time. And I just think, I don't like you anymore (laughs) when people say that. Um, So I do, actually. um, The person that I mostly talk to about books is Chris Bowen, the shadow treasurer. He's really interested in American politics and in British politics, and he's really widely read. So whenever he comes in for an interview, I say, you know, what are you reading at the moment? We have a quick back and forth on that. Malcolm Turnbull obviously reads a lot of books. Um, not so much a back and forth, usually just Malcolm <laughs> holding forth. <laughs> Hello, Malcolm, if you're listening. He's <laughs> uh, more of a forensic yeah. reader than you, though. Yes, you he's, he's, he's um, an aggressive reader, Malcolm. <laughs> um, one of the nicest things... <laughs> One of the great things about Malcolm is that he really does, he, he is an incredibly broad reader. And, you know, I just think that that is really useful in politics. I'm frightened when I meet politicians who don't read, you know. Um, and, and I think one of the sad things about contemporary politics is that there really isn't all that much time for introspection. I saw when, you know, when Obama was elected, he said, I'm going to retain some time in my day for thinking and for reading. And look, it was a really courageous thing to do because most people, like I think, who are, you know, um, decisive about electoral politics in, in America think it's sort of a weird elite thing to do to kind of, you know, bury your nose in a novel or something. But now, there's somebody who wouldn't want to be seen in public reading Twilight. No, exactly. <laughs> no, he just, he, he, when he writes his own books, I suppose, you know. But, um, you know, I think that um, it's... The life of the mind is hugely important um, in politics. And I think, as I said, the sad thing is that people often get squeezed out. Not Malcolm, who's got like a real multitasker. One of the funniest... God, seriously, I think the funniest exchanges I've ever had with him uh, was on a... We were on a panel um, with Laurie Oakes and it was at a journalism conference or something. And Malcolm, in his kind of hilarious way, was multitasking. Somebody else was talking, not me or Laurie with somebody else. And Malcolm was just like, yep, not interested. And so he had two devices in front. Like, he had his phone and he was, you know, doing something. And then he was, uh, he was reading something on his uh, iPad. And it's, I was sitting next to him, so I was like, what are you reading? He was reading an article about Doric architecture. Oh. Yeah. And I just went, that's hilarious. I love that. And then, but he was listening because then... Um, 
Laurie made this remark where he said that Tony Abbott had made some comment and, and Laurie was saying that he found it a very depressing comment. He'd said something like, I don't think that any politician, including me, should be held responsible for things that happen after the course of their own lifetime. <coughs> and, um, and everyone went, oh. And Malcolm, without even looking up from this architecture thing, said, yes, but he is incredibly fit, isn't he? <laughs> 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 it was so good. <laughs> I just thought, that's a good brain, right? He's just going, email, architecture, zinger, you know. Anyway. Uh, probably got time for two more quick questions, if anyone would like to ask. How about here? Holly from Twitter who we gave a, a ticket to this morning. Oh, Holly from Twitter, we said, um, we gave away on Chat 10 Looks 3 two tickets, like really not very long ago this morning. And Holly, who was in bed in Parramatta uh, at the time said, oh, brilliant, hold them, I'll come. So <laughs> Holly has made it here from Parramatta. And her actual surname is from Twitter. Yep, Holly. <laughs> yeah. uh, thanks again, guys. Um, I'm just wondering, you guys are so busy. What, when you're reading Pleasure... What makes you decide, yep, that's going to be worth it or, yeah, I'm just not going to do this? Well, I couldn't hear that, sorry. Uh, when you're reading for pleasure, what makes you say, yep, yep, I'm going to read that book or, you know, eh, I'm just going to leave that there? It's totally sort of organic. I can't, sometimes yeah. I like the look of a cover. Yeah. Often in a bookstore, I'll pick up and read the first page and see if it pulls me in. Um, a lot of word of mouth, if people whose taste I respect. Except for mine, because the mine li sit on her <laughs> bedside table indefinitely. Um, yeah, word of mouth. Uh, like two people in this writers' festival have told me I've got to read a book called H for Hawk. And so yeah, I'll probably right. read that. One of whom was Helen Garner, so I'll definitely read it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I normally find my way uh, to books through articles. So I'll read something, you know, and a book is mentioned in a certain context and I'll think, oh, right, okay, that sounds good. So I chase it up, which means that I'm a, just a ferocious impulse buyer of online. Like I'm pretty much um, Amazon's ideal customer. So, um, and it happens to me in bookshops too where I'll like have something and someone will say, oh, have you read this? And I'll be like... Ooh, all right. So, you know, I'm kind of eminently suggestible. <laughs> Did you know, I heard the other day that um, that function on the Amazon website um, and in Australia, um, uh, a really interesting online bookseller is Booktopia as well, which is Australian-owned, um, independent and faster. So I'll put in that plug for the Aussie uh, battler. But that whole thing about refer um, references where you, 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 know, you buy a book and whether you're in a bookshop or in, you're in online... Someone says, well, if you like that, you might like this. It's actually a really potent um, factor. And I read somewhere that 40% um, of Amazon's sales are, are from that, you know, kind of what about this thing, um, which is pretty amazing, isn't it? We are very suggestible, and uh, I certainly am a big part of that. One more question. I'll probably over here, maybe, because we haven't um, taken any Waving lady in cape. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> That would be the name of my memoir That's now. Like, do you ever think? Do you ever think? Yeah, right. I've got about a thousand words, like titles for my memoir. You're you always know. coming up with memoir titles. I know. When you meet people socially, can you uh, control yourself? You just have to interview them. <laughs> I can answer that for her. One of the funniest things about this podcast is we're like, it'll be just us talking to each other. She's like, yes, and I'll be asking the questions and holding the device. So we did this thing once where I held the device and you were actually grabbing. Oh, was, you were grabbing. It was really I funny. found it really hard to yeah. not take control back. I much prefer to be the interviewer than the person being interviewed because I'm such a control freak so I feel anxious if I'm not the one in the driver's seat. And I prefer so. to be the interviewed because then I don't have to think of anything in advance. Right. You know? like, <laughs> so I'm it's a perfect like, partnership. Right, yeah, I'm just like, I know that she'll do all the work so I'll just turn up and you know, I'll derail her and constantly interrupt her. But then again, you do that to people too, don't you? <laughs> I, um, I remember once being at drinks with somebody with my very good friend Lisa Miller, the ABC's Washington correspondent, and after about half an hour of whatever was going on, the person said, can you two stop grilling me? And I realised we'd both been like, and, and blah, 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 and blah, 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 and just sort of hammering this poor person. And at the end, like after eight minutes, did you say, we're right out of time, thanks for I did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the 
thing, like the really interesting thing about like, I filled in for your job for two terrifying weeks. And what I really learned very quickly is that I like to interview people over the period of about five hours, which is how long our kitchen cabinet <laughs> shoots, right? You know, and you can really, you can really go around the paddock a few times before you get to the point in those interviews, which is great because, you know, we then edit it down to half an hour. And I sort of, the way you get people comfortable is you're like, so I'm going to sit here and we're going to chop some onions and you can just bang on about whatever boring to me stuff you want to get out of your system and then I'll start asking the stuff I really want to hear but you'll psychologically be thinking, I already got out all my best stuff that I really want to be on the show and then you're kind of like, sure, yeah, I killed a guy once, whatever, you know, chopped off. Um, so that is a great luxury but what I found when I pretended to be you uh, for a bit was like, geez, seven minutes to interview somebody, it's really hard because every 10 seconds, 30 seconds that they spend trying to fill time filibustering, which is what politicians do all the time, is time that you don't then have to ask them something that people actually want to know, <laughs> which true. is why she's so interrupting. <laughs> it's true. And possibly why, even as you were speaking, then I've got this vague sense of anxiety because I'm looking at the clock I going, the time's are. ticking down, the time's ticking down, stop speaking, mm. stop speaking. <laughs> yeah. anyway, and there's a square yeah. dance booked for this area yeah. afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, we're out of time. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. It was so nice of you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, <laughs> okay, so um, I've just been reminded that there is a book signing downstairs. Um, I know we didn't get to the top three, but we'll tweet. Is that okay if we do that? And then you can tell each other, uh, book signing downstairs and sales. I don't have a book to sign. You can sign mine, sweetie. Right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs>